President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping plan to meet today in California, their first face-to-face -face meeting in more than a year. It's Wednesday, November 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israel says its soldiers have entered Gaza's largest hospital complex, where thousands are being treated and taking shelter. Also, the conflict in some Massachusetts historic districts between keeping an old world look and new efforts to fight climate change. I think we need to become more aware of the nexus between historic preservation and the needs to safeguard our environment. And this hour. We are on strike now because we want to safe and we want a solid employment. Unionized workers at Tesla's factory in Sweden take action after the car maker refused to sign a bargaining agreement. In sports, Bruins win mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The Israeli military is inside the largest hospital in Gaza, seeking Hamas militants. Israel says the operation is, quote, precise. There are health care workers and patients still inside the complex. More Americans than compared to a month ago are saying that Israel's response to Hamas's attack has gone too far. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports that is driven by a split among Democrats who responded to the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. 38% in the survey of more than 1,400 adults say the Israeli response has been too much. 38% also say, though, that it's been about right. Those saying Israel's gone too far is up 12 points from a month ago and is mostly driven by Democrats. A majority of Democrats now say it's been too much, up 21 points from last month. There are big racial and generational divides here. People younger than 45 and people of color were far more likely to say the response from Israel has been too much. That could spell political trouble for President Biden, as those are two key groups to his re-election. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is in San Francisco today to attend a major Asian-Pacific economic summit. His key meeting is today with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Relations have been strained between both nations. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there's a lot of work that China and the U.S. can accomplish together. For the sake of the globe, we need to work together. We've agreed to do that with respect to economic growth, the impact of our economies on the entire global outlook, financial stability, regulatory issues, climate and debt problems in low-income countries. She spoke to NPR's All Things Considered. Seven more women have joined a lawsuit in Texas over the state's abortion law. They allege the exception for the procedure when a woman's life is in danger is too narrow. They claim it endangered them during complicated pregnancies. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports 20 patients are now suing Texas. Because she has a variety of health conditions, including diabetes and end-stage renal disease, Christina Nunez's doctors had advised her not to get pregnant, according to the Center for Reproductive Rights. After she learned she was pregnant in May 2023, her health quickly got worse. In June, when one of her arms turned black from blood clots, she went to an emergency room. She was admitted, but the hospital would not provide an abortion, even as her health worsened. She received an abortion days later after finding a pro bono attorney. The Texas Supreme Court is set to consider the center's request for a temporary injunction that would allow abortions in a wider range of medical situations. That hearing is scheduled for November 28th. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Classes will resume at public schools in Andover today. The school committee and teachers union there reached an agreement on a new contract last night to end a teacher strike that began last week. Both sides say the deal will increase pay for teachers and assistants, boost the number of sick days, and improve parental leave. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts, but Andover is one of several communities that's seen a strike in the last couple of years. Greater Boston is falling short of a goal to build more housing. That's according to a new report from the Boston Foundation. A coalition of 15 Boston-area mayors set a goal to build 185,000 new units of housing by 2030. But data show the communities are on track to only meet half that. The report also shows Boston is last among the largest U.S. cities when it comes to the availability of rental units. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering a bill that would require substance use treatment instead of incarceration for those who relapse while on probation or parole. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports testimony on that bill is expected today. The legislative briefing will involve testimony from addiction experts who say relapse is common and should not result in putting someone behind bars. Dr. Todd Kerensky, former president of the Massachusetts Society of Addiction Medicine, says the threat of incarceration jeopardizes treatment. When we incarcerate people for having lapses as a probation violation, we are interrupting people's treatment and we are discouraging them from being open and honest with their providers in the community. A pending bill would require that courts order more treatment and not immediately incarcerate someone who fails a drug or alcohol test while on probation or parole. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. A new MBTA website for Charlie Cards will go live in less than an hour. The update means riders will no longer be able to refill their cards online, but they will be able to request replacement cards and sign up for auto payments. Reggie Ramos is executive director of the advocacy group Transportation for Massachusetts. She says there are still unanswered questions about the update. What is apparent to us is the lack of one-time top-up, which is crucial for folks who don't have the ability to make a financial commitment of a monthly auto-pay recurring payments for their uh, charge card. Ramos says she hopes that confusion with the new system will be sorted out quickly. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The Bruins beat the Sabres 5-2 last night in Buffalo. The Bees are now off until Saturday. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Philadelphia 76ers. Mostly sunny today with temperatures in the low 50s, cloudy overnight in the 30s, sunny tomorrow, and in the low 60s, it's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Somewhere in California today, President Biden meets China's leader Xi Jinping. We're not being told the exact location yet for security reasons. She is in the United States for a big meeting of Pacific Rim leaders, but this separate meeting between the leaders of the two dominant powers in the Pacific and around the world may mean more. 
Relations are so bad that President Biden says he wants to talk about talking. He wants to make sure that he can get China's leader on the phone in a crisis and wants to make sure the two militaries can talk with one another. Patricia Kim is our next guest. She focuses on U.S.-China relations at the Brookings Institution. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. How big a deal is it that these two militaries have not been talking? Well, Steve, I think it is a big deal, given Chinese and U.S. forces, as well as the forces of U.S. partners, are operating every day in close proximity to each other in hot spots like the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. So the idea here is that the uh, an American general would want to be able to call his or her Chinese counterpart and say, listen, let's not start a nuclear war over this. I mean, that's really the really the issue here, isn't it? Absolutely. And that just hasn't been possible in recent months, especially since uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last August when China cut um, um, all the dialogues between the two militaries. There were dialogues between working level defense officials, a dialogue around maritime safety issues between theater commanders, and all of these were cut. And so the United States has been keen to restore these channels of communications which it believes are essential for avoiding miscalculations and reducing the risks of conflict. Is it right that even the presidents haven't been talking? Well, the presidents, uh, right, they have not met in a year. So this would be the first time they've met uh, since they saw each other in Bali uh, last November. Uh, But the two sides have been ramping up diplomatic communications, and we've seen a number of high-level officials from the U.S. side going over to China and Chinese officials coming uh, back to the U.S. I want to think about the U.S. approach to China and how it might be received in China. President Biden has said that he wants to cooperate where possible while also recognizing that there's a rivalry. And, of course, the United States has taken a lot of steps in the last couple of years, ramping up competition over computer chips. Just to just to name something, blocking a lot of technology transfer of various kinds to to China. Are the Chinese feeling these these moves? I think they are. I think they are. They are worried about the export restrictions that the U.S. has imposed. Um, They are worried about the downward trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. And so I do think that Xi's visit to the United States now is about trying to stabilize the U.S.-China relationship. I think they realize now is not the time to rock the boat with the U.S., especially as they uh, face economic headwinds at home. And there's also been a lot of turbulence in the Chinese political system with a number of high-level officials being dismissed. And so there's a desire to um, maybe not fundamentally reset but to tactically stabilize the U.S.-China relationship. You know, I'm glad you mentioned those those two terms you just did. You talked about economic headwinds. You talked about political turbulence. Uh, Evan Osnos of The New Yorker had a long uh, account of uh, multiple visits to China in recent months and talking with people at all levels of society and comes out with a sense uh, that, that a lot of Chinese think that they're in decline, that, that, that this country that seemed to be on the rise just a few years ago has now uh, been clamped down upon by Xi's leadership and seems to be economically struggling a little bit. Do you think that a Chinese leader would go into a meeting like this with the president of the United States feeling that his country is in some kind of trouble? 
Well, I don't know if he would state that in public, but I think it is the fact that the Chinese economy is not performing as well as it did in the past. Um, there is low business and consumer confidence. There's record low youth unemployment. And I think during the COVID times, um, there was a lot of trust that was lost uh, by the Chinese people in their government uh, with, this, with these very draconian zero COVID policies. I think people realized whether they're rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, that um, there was nothing they could do when there were these extreme lockdowns. And so uh, what I hear from my Chinese counterparts is that a lot of trust has been lost and there's still a lot of shock around the pandemic years. And so I think that's the sort of the, the environment that exists in China. Is this a zero-sum game, meaning is that trouble in China good for the United States in some way? You know, I don't think necessarily it is good. Um, I think that the U.S. does have an interest in a stable China. It doesn't have an interest in a China where there's um, chaos at home or that it's feeling nervous and and might seek for um, for more adventures abroad. I don't think there's interest in that. I do think there's a genuine interest on both sides in stabilizing this relationship and opening up channels of communication. Patricia Kim of the Brookings Institution, thanks for your insights. Sure, thanks to be here. The House of Representatives voted to avoid a government shutdown yesterday. Yeah, the fractured Republican majority had to work with Democrats to manage that basic goal, and that has exposed more tensions in the majority. At one point, two Republican lawmakers collided in a hallway. Tim Burchett of Tennessee accused former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of shoving him. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, you're pathetic, man. Reporters were watching this incident, including NPR congressional mixed martial arts correspondent, oh, excuse me, <laughs> congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales. Claudia, what did you see? Good morning, A. I was interviewing Burchett when I saw McCarthy in his detail come by. It seemed that McCarthy shoved into Burchett and a chase ensued, and that confrontation is what you just heard. And this is part of the same struggles we're seeing play out with Republicans uh, in terms of the differences, the bitterness. Uh, earlier this year, the same struggles we saw during the speakership fight, these are all still there. And before I shared the news yesterday of what I saw between McCarthy and Burchett, House Speaker Mike Johnson yesterday talked about these pressures they're facing. This will allow everybody to go home for a couple of days for Thanksgiving. Everybody cool off. Members have been here for, as, as uh, Leader Scalise said, for 10 weeks. Um, it, this place is a pressure cooker. So this pressure cooker is something I've been tracking recently. One reason why is that it's rooted in the concern that tensions have been so high that they could lead to altercations like the one I saw play out right in front of me. And even passing this temporary funding measure to avert a government shutdown yesterday does not erase the very, very difficult differences that remain. What is uh, Kevin McCarthy saying about this? He's denying this happened later. He held a press conference to defend himself. He's insisted that it was not intentional, that it all happened in a narrow, crowded hallway where it's difficult to pass through when interviews are happening. But we should note, this hallway was wide enough for McCarthy and his detail to get through. Burchett and I had moved to the side. So you would not expect any pushing, shoving, or elbowing uh, in terms of what played out yesterday. And McCarthy has been accused of this before. Former Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger noted something similar happened to him when he was in Congress in a recent book he just released. Is it the House or the Octagon? My goodness, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it seems like it's that bad. Okay, so it's wild. The, uh, yeah, the temporary funding measure that passed the House, uh, what, what's expected to happen in the Senate? 
So the Senate is expected to take this up next. We're expecting a strong bipartisan vote there as well. So Congress is on track to avert a shutdown. As for the House, even as Johnson saw this major victory yesterday, there was a bipartisan vote of 336 to 95. There's still a long ways to go before repairing these ultimate tensions that linger here. And a new shutdown threat is now pushed off to early next year. But both chambers are still facing the prospect of coming up with permanent funding plans. And meanwhile, House conservatives keep taking down spending bills. It undermines the argument that they'll get this done with the extra time. And some members are making vague threats that could include ousting Johnson if he keeps going down this path of bipartisan votes. So the anger here is very present. There's fights in the Senate as well. So just the overall toxicity here is not great in terms of going into next year's election year. That's NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Keep your head on a swivel. <laughs> I Claudia, will. please. Thank you, A. Supporters of Israel rallied by the tens of thousands here in Washington yesterday, and NPR's Joel Rose reports. The National Mall was a sea of blue and white signs and Israeli flags under a heavy security presence. Israeli President Isaac Herzog addressed the enormous crowd by video from Jerusalem, calling Hamas's October 7th attack the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Let us cry out together, never again, never again, never again is now. A long list of speakers denounced what they call a rise in anti-Semitism and hatred, and some pushed back against critics of Israel. The Israeli offensive in Gaza has killed thousands. Protesters around the world and in the U.S. have called for a ceasefire as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza deepens. But Israeli leaders have rejected those calls. And on Tuesday, a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers showed their support for the Israeli government. We stand! We stand! Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer led the crowd in a chant as Democrats and Republicans joined hands on stage. And newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson drew a big ovation with this line. The calls for a ceasefire are outrageous. Many in the crowd carried signs showing faces of the 240 hostages who are still being held by Hamas. And the parents of a few of them spoke from the stage. Rachel Goldberg is the mother of Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who was captured while attending a music festival attacked by Hamas. Why is the world accepting that 240 human beings from almost 30 countries have been stolen and buried alive? More than once, the crowd broke into a chant, Bring Them Home. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we go to Michigan, a key state in the upcoming presidential election and home to a large Arab-American population. We'll hear how the Israel-Hamas war may influence voters there. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Boston Early Music Festival with their Grammy-winning Chamber Opera Series on Thanksgiving weekend in Boston, November 25th and 26th. BEMF.org 
and the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. Los Angeles has the biggest population of homeless veterans in the country. After years of broken promises, hear how the VA may finally be on track to house vets in West LA. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. Boston's official Christmas tree begins its journey to the city today. The 45-foot white spruce comes from Nova Scotia. The Canadian province sends a tree to Boston each year as a thank you for the city's help after a devastating ship explosion in 1917. The tree will be lit on the common on November 30th. Mostly clear skies today. High temperatures will be in the low 50s. Tonight will dip into the 30s and clouds will move in. Then skies clear overnight and we'll have a sunny day tomorrow with highs in the low 60s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The police officers who protected the U.S. Capitol on January 6th still bear scars from that day, physically and emotionally. One of those officers is Harry Dunn. He was on duty with the U.S. Capitol Police when rioters stormed the Capitol nearly three years ago. Dunn recently published a memoir called Standing My Ground. It documents how the violence of that day changed how he views himself and his country. I started by asking him if he ever imagined when he became a police officer that he would have to defend the Capitol from an armed insurrection. No. One, I couldn't fathom an attack like that happening. But I also at that time didn't realize the country was on the course to where it is now. Like a lot of people, you don't really pay attention unless something's actually affecting you directly. Describe that day for somebody who just watched, I mean, I watched it on television. I was in Los Angeles, you know, yeah. so I I was watching these images I never imagined at the Capitol, but you were inside it. If you could just describe briefly what it was like to see what was happening and start to comprehend. Sure. You know, one of the, the things that I think is hard for people to realize, the officers who were inside giving everything they had to defend the Capitol, we were fighting for the person next to us, like our, our brother, our sister, and we wanted to make sure that they, along with ourselves, got to go home at the end of the night. 
I think I want to know what it was like when you finally did go home. <laughs> when I got home, I, I wanted to get out of the clothes that was covered in the soot and the grime and the residual pepper spray. And I took all those clothes off and I put them in the washing machine. I grabbed some bourbon and I got in the shower. I usually go grab a glass, but I grabbed the whole bottle. And I got in the shower with the bottle of bourbon and just, I, I remember crying in the shower. I don't even remember going to sleep that night. Pretty early on, at first anonymously, you started telling your story. Yeah. Well, why did you do that? The, that John Lewis quote sticks out to me. Um, when you see something that isn't just you have to stand up, you have to fight back, you have to say something. And I didn't want the narrative that was starting to run about that day from the deniers. I didn't want that narrative. It already did gain traction, but... And has gained, gained traction. It has gained traction. But I wanted to combat it with what actually happened. What was being told in that narrative wasn't what happened. Tell me about the narrative you were combating. Like it being a tour visit. Like it, we were opening the doors for them. That it was a protest that got out of hand. Because the individuals told us they were there because Donald Trump sent us there. And you hold him responsible. The individuals made decisions whether somebody told them to or not. So they're ultimately responsible for their actions. But he definitely bears responsibility for inciting it mm -hmm. or emboldening these people to do it. You <clears throat> testified against two Oath Keeper leaders who got pretty long prison sentences. Yeah. Did that feel like justice? Kind of. Anybody who had anything to do with the failures, even the lack of preparation, they need to be held accountable. And until that happens all the way at all levels, I don't necessarily know if I'll feel like it's really justice. Mm. You know, I, I'm not celebrating people being convicted um, and sent to jail. That's not a celebration. Actually, I feel sad because mm. I see that they are real human people. And their families are being torn apart and their lives are destroyed. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that, you know, hey, go lenient on them, be nice to them. But it's a sad thing that there were real victims that day, not just the police officers. America as a whole was a victim of an attack on an assault on democracy. How are you personally? I mean, it's almost three years. How are you? You know, I have this this anger about that day mm -hmm. and the denialism um, of people that are, it, it angers me, but that anger fuels my passion to fight for accountability. And I feel like once I'm not angry anymore, it scares me that I won't care anymore. What if it's over and I'm like, I'm not affected anymore, I'm good. Mm -hmm. That's where we have this complacency as a nation and th that's what happened we took the, our eyes off the ball in 2016 mm -hmm. and we got Donald Trump we got complacent when you cried that night when you finally got home what was it that was sort of top of mind that really hurt you from that day I've always viewed the Capitol building I've always revered it I I 16 years in my job and every day I get the opportunity I walk through end to end inside and I stare at the rotunda 
and I'm just in awe of it, what it represents. Mm -hmm. The people that built it were slaves and having the honor to protect that building, not just in an ancestral way for my ancestors, but to represent the, what, the democracy, this country, and to be able to protect democracy. I view myself as a defender of democracy. And to see it in the way that it was that day afterwards, it just broke my heart. It just broke my heart that this is where we are. And I, I this may sound so cliche or even, you know, some people, well, whatever. But my heart broke for this country. My heart broke for the country because I love this country. Mm -hmm. I love it. Harry Dunn is a U.S. Capitol police officer. He was at the Capitol on January 6th, and his new memoir is called Standing My Ground. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you having me. It was great talking with you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the increasing tension between homeowners who want to invest in green technology and some Massachusetts historic districts that are committed to maintaining an old-timey feel in their communities. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Poetry's Evening of Inspired Leaders. On November 20th, inspiring words from Jill Medvedow, Janae Osterheld, and more. MassPoetry.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military says its forces are inside the largest hospital in Gaza, targeting Hamas fighters in a specific area of the facility. Israel calls it a precise operation in the Al-Shifa complex, where doctors, medical staff, patients, and evacuees remain trapped. The Israeli military says it's found weapons and other items at the hospital. In Jerusalem... Live. Live. Critics of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu chanting Go in Hebrew. They want Netanyahu to resign amid Israel's war with Hamas, calling him divisive. President Biden is scheduled to meet today with China's President Xi Jinping. They're expected to discuss a wide range of issues over several hours on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. It's being held in San Francisco. NPR's Tamara Keith reports. Relations with China have been chilly. Biden and Xi haven't spoken since last November. Uh, and it's been more than a year since China broke off military to military communications channels with U.S. officials. And uh, American leaders are, are not making a secret of the fact that they really want to see those communications restored. 
Biden is expected to hold a news conference after meeting with Xi. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Brookline is moving forward with a housing plan that's being called a generational change. The plan will allow more than 800 new apartments and condos along Harvard Avenue in Brookline Village and Coolidge Corner. The plan will help Brookline comply with a new state law that requires more multifamily housing in communities served by the MBTA. Sam Mintz with Brookline News was at the town meeting last night when the plan won approval. Town leaders want to be seen as an example of how to respond to this law that really gave communities a push. uh, And they want to be seen as an example of a town that's doing it in a way that is really going to actually lead to more housing and really going to actually, you know, start working on how to solve the crisis in the area. Other communities have until the end of the year to comply with the state law. COVID restrictions at the start of the pandemic blocked many aspiring teachers from completing the entry requirements to obtain a license in Massachusetts. So the state authorized an emergency teaching license, allowing anyone with a bachelor's degree to enter the profession. A new study from Boston University looks at how these educators measured up to teachers from traditional pathways. More now from WBUR's Emily Piper-Villillo. The new report from BU's Wheelock Educational Policy Center examined performance ratings, principal surveys, and student growth on standardized tests from the 2021 to 2022 school year. Study co-author Andrew Backer-Hicks says the report found no meaningful deviation in quality among educators who hold an emergency license. There's really no indication that the students who were assigned to emergency license holders were really getting teachers who were substantially different on any of the sort of traditional measures of effectiveness. Over the last three years, the state has issued more than 19,000 emergency licenses. They will begin expiring next June. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper-Villillo. The Federal Aviation Administration is investigating after four commercial flights near Boston reported being hit by a green laser light. The FAA says those lasers can temporarily blind pilots. It says the incidents happened this week during the early morning. Fines can be up to $11,000 for each offense. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Five different Bruins scored for the team last night in Buffalo. They beat the Sabres 5-2. to two. The Bees are now off until Saturday when they'll host the Montreal Canadiens. Tonight, the Celtics begin a week-long road trip as they play the Philadelphia 76ers. Highs in the low 50s today under mostly sunny skies. It grows cloudy tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Skies clear overnight and then Thursday will be sunny with highs in the low 60s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to W. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The war between Israel and Hamas has exposed political divides here in the United States. And they matter in swing states where a few thousand votes could plausibly change the outcome in next year's election. Consider Michigan, which is where we find NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne. Hey there, Don. Hey, good morning. What are you hearing in that state? I was at a recent pro-Palestinian protest in downtown Detroit, and the anger, the frustration, I mean, it was overwhelming. There's worry about Palestinians caught in the crossfire of the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, They condemn Hamas for the atrocities of October 7th, but they are angry that innocent Palestinians suffer and die as Israel responds with the backing of the U.S. Uh, One of the many speakers at the rally was state lawmaker Abraham Ayash. He's a Democrat. He's also the majority leader of the Michigan House. America, you promised the world that all men and women are created equal, yet somehow we find billions of dollars to dehumanize Palestinians. And that was the tone. Speaker after speaker uh, echoed those sentiments. Yeah, I'm thinking about the Arab American community specifically in, in Michigan, Don, and how that was a community that Republicans cultivated more than 20 years ago, thought was naturally a Republican constituency, but then swung to Democrats after 9-11. That's right. And this area has the largest concentration of Arabs outside the Middle East. Uh, In the early 20th century, it was auto jobs that were the big lure. Uh, Mosques sprung up, businesses of all kinds. Uh, More and more came. And over the years, some immigrants arrived fleeing war. And if you pay a visit, it is easy to see the deep ties to their ancestral homes. Uh, and, And when war breaks out far away, they feel it. Well, then we have this constituency that in recent years seems to lean Democratic. Is this is this war affecting sentiment about President Biden? Absolutely. Uh, one typical conversation we had was with a student at Michigan State University. Uh, Yusuf Abbas is his name. He voted for Biden in 2020. But listen to his disillusionment today. With his leadership, eventually, I was hoping that, you know, there would be significant progress towards a lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis. And when I see him, it feels as though he does not show as much care towards the loss of life of Palestinians as he does for Israelis. So hope early on, uh, anger, uh, disillusionment now, it's a harsh assessment, but a very common one. Is the Arab American vote big enough to make a difference in Michigan? Uh, Let me run some numbers. Biden won this group by a huge margin, according to exit polls. He got maybe 67, 68% of the vote. Hmm. There are some 200,000 registered voters in Michigan who are Arab American. Biden only carried the state by 150,000 votes. So if it's that close again, or closer, uh, then these Arab American votes can absolutely be decisive. Are there some voters who are saying, I may withhold my vote, I may not vote at all in 2024? Oh, oh, it's easy to find them. And activists are on that. It's the only leverage they feel like they have. And at that rally, it was the main message, uh, protect Palestinian lives or face political consequences. NPR's Don Gagne reporting from Detroit. Don, it's always a pleasure hearing from you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Again, thanks. Thanks. 
Tesla has long fended off efforts to unionize its workforce around the world. But in Sweden, the EV maker is facing its first ever labor action. And Swedish workers of all stripes are banding together to boycott Tesla. These actions could have ripple effects for the company globally. Danielle Kay reports from Sweden. At the Malmo port in southern Sweden, cargo ships tower over a group of dock workers in neon yellow union jackets. They're surrounded by rows of cars, Volkswagens, Volvos, Mercedes, but notably missing are Teslas. This is an ordinary port for Tesla to come, and uh, they used to come here one, two, three times a week. So, But uh, right now, there is no Teslas. Anders Gustafsson is with the Transport Workers Union. Dock workers in this union are refusing to unload any Teslas at Sweden's four major ports. This Friday, they're expanding their blockade to the entire country. And when the ship is sailing away, the Tesla is going to in that boat. Not here. Why? Because Tesla, led by staunchly anti-union Elon Musk, is refusing to sign a collective bargaining agreement for its Swedish mechanics. I replace windshields, I uh, replace parts... I uh, repair whatever is necessary. I do. Pre- That's the voice of a Tesla mechanic in Gothenburg who asked to be anonymous. He's worried about retaliation by the company. We are on strike now because we want a safe and we want a solid employment. He says a collective bargaining agreement would provide a financial safety net for workers. He's one of roughly 120 Tesla workers who'd benefit. Thousands more Swedish workers, dock workers, electricians, cleaners, are boycotting Tesla in solidarity. Anti-union tactics have a different effect in Sweden, where, unlike in the U.S., trade unions are part of the fabric of the economy. About 90 percent of workers here are covered by collective bargaining agreements, which standardize pay rates, insurance, and pensions in each sector. This is the way we regulate working conditions in Sweden and has been for a long, long time. Jesper Pedersen is the spokesperson for the Metal Workers Union, which launched the Tesla strike. It has been very beneficial for both parties, both for employers and for employees. The unions do have an uphill battle on their hands. Sweden is a relatively small market for Tesla, its fifth biggest in Europe. And Tesla doesn't manufacture any cars here. It could decide to leave the country altogether. But Hermann Bender, a labor market analyst in Stockholm, says that's unlikely. And he doubts the Swedish unions will give up on their fight anytime soon. If the Tesla workers in Sweden would manage to sign the first collective agreement ever with Tesla, I think that could have a symbolic importance in other markets. Tesla didn't respond to requests for comment. Back at the port in southern Sweden, Gustafsson of the Transport Workers Union says the strike is at its core a domestic issue. It's about a foreign company at odds with Sweden's labor norms and values. But he says unions in other countries are paying attention. We get solidarity message from the whole world, from United States, from Canada. The strike comes as unions in bigger markets are also challenging Tesla. Musk is facing a union drive at a factory in Germany. In the U.S., the American carmaker has so far prevented all attempts to unionize its workforce. But the United Auto Workers Union has set its sights on Tesla after negotiating major deals with the Detroit three automakers. We hope that the Tesla workers all around the world actually take that fight. Uh, Somebody need to be first. Tesla is still holding its ground, but Swedish workers are ramping up pressure on the company. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kay in Malmö, Sweden.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBMR's Morning Edition, we look at new House Speaker Mike Johnson's ties to far-right Christians who favor ending the separation of church and state. Mostly sunny and low 50s today, mostly cloudy and upper 30s tonight. Sunny tomorrow and will warm up to the low 60s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with contemporary art at auction November 16th, featuring paintings, sculpture, and limited editions from artists like Kahinde Wiley, Nan Golden, Alex Katz, and Keith Herring. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swangalleries.com and on the Swan app. Home sales in greater Boston are at the lowest levels in more than a decade. That's according to data from the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. Its new report shows prices for homes in October were also up nearly 11 percent compared to the previous year. The average price of a single-family home in the area is now nearly $830,000. Waltham-based Mark Forged is cutting 10 percent of its workforce. That accounts for about 40 people currently employed by the 3D printing company. Mark Forged says the cuts will happen across all departments. Its CEO blames, quote, worsening macroeconomic headwinds. Online bidders were quick to make offers on equipment the jewelry company Alex and Annie left behind at its Rhode Island headquarters. The company filed for bankruptcy in 2021. An online auction of thousands of items from its former office attracted nearly 900 bidders. They'll take home a variety of equipment, memorabilia, and artwork from the now-closed company. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Across New England, historic districts are focused on maintaining a certain old-world look and feel. That can be at odds with some efforts to confront climate change. It's a showdown happening now on Cape Cod, even among people who live in more recently built homes. Yves Zukoff reports some homeowners are encountering problems when they try to put up solar panels. So we can um, probably go out here. It's probably better. When Yarmouth resident John Beach steps out into his backyard, he sees two things he's proud of. A sprawling garden filled with tomatoes, zucchini, and berries, and the 12 solar panels installed on his roof. I kind of like them. It sort of um, suggests that at least I'm aware of some things. Some things meaning climate change and the power of renewable energy to drive down planet warming emissions. Beach worked with a solar company that initially proposed panels on the back and front of his house. But the Yarmouth Old Kings Highway Historic District Committee told him that the panels on the front would be historically inappropriate, that it was visually inconsistent with the standards of the Historic Commission. Beach was frustrated. His neighbors just two doors down have solar panels on the front of their house. 
The historic committee told him that's because the house is set back with trees in the yard. That answer for Beach was maddening. I certainly respect what they're trying to do. I mean, I live here partly for that reason, but I think we need to become more um, aware of the nexus between historic preservation and the needs to safeguard our environment. The 45,000-some people who live in this 80-square-mile historic district on Cape Cod are required to get approval from historic committees for solar installations that are visible from a public way. Over the last few decades, many who've had their solar plans challenged or denied describe the committee's decisions as being inconsistent, arbitrary, and unobjective. But the committees remain steadfast. Tourists and locals alike love seeing history before them. And solar panels on the front of a house can read like billboards for modernity. When you start messing with the street view of your house, we have a legal right on behalf of the public to make a judgment of the appropriateness of it. That's Jim Wilson who manages the appeal process for the Old Kings Highway Regional Historic District Committee. The job is to only approve solar panels on homes when they present a minimal visual impact on the neighborhood. And that right there is often the source of the argument. What defines a minimal visual impact? Still, the historic committees have made changes to accommodate solar. Now, proposals to install all-black panels on all-black roofs on houses built less than 75 years ago don't have to plead their case to town historic committees. You don't have to go through a hearing. You simply fill out this form, show us that you meet the criteria for an exemption, and that's all you have to do. This exemption is sort of a game changer. It's just proof that they're listening and they're trying to work with us. That's Angela Hemela a partner at Solar Rising, a solar company based in Mashpee. She says even with the exemption, it's still more costly and time-consuming to install solar panels in the historic district. And she says there's one more thing we should be considering. Cape Cod also has the highest electric rates in the state. The reality of it is that the people that live in these houses are being charged an astronomical amount from the utility and... Installing solar is a great way to combat that. Even though he only has solar panels on the back of his house, Yarmouth resident John Beach has seen a 50% drop in his electric bills. And these days, he and his wife are frequently checking the solar app that shows how much energy they're using. And if we see a little blip in the chart, I'll say, oh, you kept left the stove on too long. Or she'll tell me, oh, you took too long a shower and the hot water heater was on for too long. Today, a bill proposed by State Senator Julian Sear is working its way through the State House. It could define solar panels in historic districts as public necessities, just like utility poles and wires. If that becomes law, historic committees would have far less power over solar approvals. That could allow John Beach to install solar also on the front of his house where he wanted it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a crackdown is underway in Brazil on exports of gold that's believed to become, that's believed to come from illegal mining in indigenous Amazonian lands. It's 7.50. 
Morning Edition from NPR News doesn't just tell you what's happening across the country and around the world. We go there so you can listen to it for yourself, whether it's rafting surging rivers in California. Dig it in. Keep going. Or taking you to a legendary crab derby in Maryland. You got a squirt bottle behind you and a bobber, okay? Go there every weekday with Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Israeli forces have entered Gaza's largest hospital in what they say is a targeted operation searching for Hamas infrastructure. President Biden will meet with Chinese President Xi today to discuss how to improve communications between the two nations. And students in Andover are getting back to school this morning following a new union contract agreement between public school teachers and the school committee. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Low 50s today and mostly sunny. It's 36 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Teachers are looking for ways to help their students make sense of the world. These tragedies dominate the news cycle. Even the youngest children can't avoid being absorbed by headlines and current events. And teachers say they need tools to help them process and filter through information. Now, one key element of that approach is media literacy. Here's NPR Sequoia Carrillo. Stephanie Nichols teaches at Narragansett School in Gorham, Maine, about 40 minutes outside of Lewiston. The whole state is still reeling from the area's recent mass shooting. Even that far away, you know, we all have connections. It's Maine. It really is like the biggest small town. Each morning, she gathers her second grade class to eat their breakfast and start their day. She tries to take her cue from them on what they want to talk about. I think people sometimes really underestimate kids of this age level. And I think they're just kind of like, oh, like they don't know. And I'm like, yeah, we're not going through like a lot of news outlets, but they are still being exposed to it. And the last week or so is no exception. My kids had all these things they heard on the news. 18 people dead, a multi-day search that closed schools and left the community on lockdown. Nichols knew they had to talk about it. One of my students said, well, Do we know why he did this? And we just had that conversation about, you know, sometimes adults, we know a lot, but we don't always have the answers for everything. And that might be something that we never have an answer for. Nichols says this isn't the first time they've had to have tough conversations about the news. Even sometimes their distractions, like YouTube videos or gamers on Twitch, can expose them to the headlines. And she wants them to understand that not everything they see on the internet can be trusted. It's important that we know who's putting out things like an advertisement because we don't necessarily know if that's a fact or opinion. For older students, like middle and high schoolers, the media literacy discussion is more nuanced. Hi, I'm John Green, and this is Crash Course Navigating Digital Information. So we're going to talk about your social media feed today. 
Green is an author and educator whose online videos are used by many teachers. And if you're going to live partly inside these feeds, I think it's really important to understand both the kinds of information that are likely to be shared with you and the kinds of information you're incentivized to share. His videos are a part of MediaWise, a program run through the Pointer Institute. Wesley Hedgepeth, a high school history and government teacher in Richmond, Virginia, uses the course. He says the unit starts with a quiz for students, asking things like... Do you know what a deep fake is? Or have you ever uh, shared something that was false? And how did you know uh, later on? So they ask them questions, the students will respond, and then they send them a, a video. The videos are hosted by people like John Green, or noted journalists. Hi there, it's Joan London again. We spend a lot of time online, and sometimes it can be difficult to weed out what's true and false on our timelines. The unit helps prepare his students to approach conflicts, like the war in Gaza. The high schoolers are taught how to evaluate a news outlet for bias. They're given different texts on the same event and told to identify the discrepancies. Sometimes media literacy is an easier path into a harder conversation. Hedgepath is the president of the National Council for the Social Studies and says how teachers talk about something like the war in Gaza can depend on what state they're in. In 17 states, divisive concepts legislation now limits what teachers can talk about. Things like critical race theory, LGBTQ rights, and gun violence are often hot-button issues. Teachers feel concerned about their job. The fact that it's already on its surface divisive, some teachers are hesitant to talk about it. But Hedgepath says the social studies classroom is uniquely qualified to have these discussions. He uses topics already in the material, like the history of the Ottoman and Byzantine empires, for instance, to give context for the region, and then uses that to make the jump from history to the present day. Hedgepath tries to get a lot of perspectives in his lessons. He says it's not just about one side's history. I often feel like the Palestinian, their story, their their perspective is is very often lost in this because very often we're focused on Hamas and the state of Israel. And with more sides to the story comes more opportunities for students to reach their own conclusions. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. Allow me to start this next story by just noting we're in mid-November. mid November. And in the UK, holiday festivities are already underway. The top 40 charts there had the earliest ever appearance of a Christmas song. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You shows up on the UK charts every season, but never this early in November. Now, if this feels like a violation of the agreement we had with Thanksgiving, remember that people in the UK do not celebrate Thanksgiving, so they're free to extend the season as far as they'd like. I'm not aware of this agreement, but they definitely are. (laughs) Another Christmas song just re-entered the chart even higher than Mariah, and it should be because it's my absolute no-doubt-about-it favorite. George Michael's 1984 song with Wham! Last Christmas is number 37 on the UK pop chart. It 
that's a good I, one. I was just going to keep going until the end, but, you know. All right, oh. so as far as we know, the U.S. is not about to experience a lot of pre-Thanksgiving Christmas songs, but there is some Christmas creep. Yes, the Hallmark Channel is already wall-to-wall with Christmas movies, and stores are now introducing early Black Friday deals. So deals for Black Friday that are not on Black Friday, but some other Friday or any other day of the week. Yeah, now, you know, the Steven Skeep that I know is quite the polished, velvety-voiced crooner. Um, <laughs> so, what songs do you like to sing around the fire oh, on my goodness. Christmas I like, I don't know, day? I like the really old stuff, you know, the oh, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, even. I can totally hear it. I can... Knowing you, Ooh, and I've only met you once, but knowing you, I can totally hear that. How have you only met me once? When we We've only together for years? met in person one time, yeah. This is true. We talk yes. over the radio and sing <laughs> from time to time. Anyway, anyway, go for what, what's your favorite other than Wham? What do you want? So, other than Wham, I guess the only other one that I would play, and I'd play these two songs back to back on a loop and never be tired of it, is Jose Feliciano. Oh, uh, Feliz Navidad. Okay. I mean, think about it. A crossover hit that happened, what, 53 years ago, 1970, in Spanish yeah. and English. It's amazing. Anyway, Groundbreaking, yeah. Anyway, Feliz Navidad. It's Morning Edition from NPR News in November. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli forces have raided Gaza's largest hospital, where hundreds of people are sheltering, and Israel says Hamas has a major command center. It's Wednesday, November 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden says he hopes to improve relations with Chinese President Xi Jinping when they meet today for the first time in more than a year. And we look at House Speaker Mike Johnson's ties to far-right Christians who want to end the separation of church and state. He's definitely sending overt signals to these extremist networks of Christians that he is in solidarity with them. Also this hour. The proposal that passed last night was really a resounding victory for that view of how Brookline should be addressing the problem. Brookline passes a historic plan to address high prices and a lack of housing. Mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Israeli military says its troops have entered the largest hospital complex in Gaza. It says Hamas militants are operating a command center there. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports medical staff and patients are trapped inside the hospital. Israel's military says it's carrying out a precise and targeted operation in a specific area of the El Shifa hospital complex. It called on any Hamas fighters inside to surrender. From the crowded hospital, the head of its burns unit tells Al Jazeera that people are being told to move away from the windows. They're panic-stricken, he says. Israel accuses Hamas of basing fighters in or under hospitals. The U.S. says its intelligence suggests the same. Meanwhile, after the United Nations said its fuel depot in Gaza is now empty and that many more people would die as a result, Israeli defense officials now say they will allow fuel into Gaza for the first time since October 7th. They say it's in response to a request from the U.S. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says it has also lost contact with medical staffers inside the Gaza hospital. Congress could be on the way to averting a pending government shutdown. 
The Senate is poised to take up a temporary funding measure to push that deadline to early next year. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the House approved the plan yesterday in a strong bipartisan vote. The Senate will take up the temporary funding measure in the coming days to keep the government open past a shutdown deadline this Friday. Now, that shutdown threat is expected to be moved to two dates early next year. House Speaker Mike Johnson crafted the plan with help from hardline Republicans. They suggested temporarily funding certain agencies, which will now face a new funding deadline in mid-January, and the remainder of agencies facing a February deadline. However, conservative Republicans voted against the plan because it did not have deep spending cuts or significant policy plan changes, issues that kept House Democrats on board to support it. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. President Biden is in San Francisco, where he will attend a major Asian-Pacific economic forum. But NPR's John Ruich tells us the key event today is Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's an opportunity, actually, for Biden and Xi to reconnect after quite a long time uh, and also, you know, attempt to renew their relationship. You know, they've met many times uh, going back to when they were vice presidents. The challenge, of course, is that the relationship between China and the U.S. is very contentious, right? The Biden administration has cast it as fundamentally competitive. Xi Jinping himself has explicitly said he thinks the U.S. is out to encircle China. NPR's John Ruich reporting, it is possible the leaders could agree to resume communication between the U.S. and Chinese militaries. These communications have been severed for more than a year. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Greater Boston has produced just half the amount of housing experts say is needed to meet the demand. That's according to a new report from the think tank Boston Indicators. WBUR Simone Rios takes a look. A group of Boston area mayors has a goal to produce 185,000 new housing units by 2030. But they're falling far short of that, new research shows. Housing production is running at barely half the planned pace so far, largely due to the high cost of building. The report finds that Massachusetts ranks in the bottom 10 of U.S. states for housing growth. Both Mayor Michelle Wu and Governor Maura Healey have put forward plans to help address the region's housing crisis. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. There will be school in Andover today for the first time since last week. That's because a teacher's strike is now over. The teachers' union and the Andover School Committee reached a four-year contract deal yesterday. It includes pay raises for teachers and assistants, a higher salary floor, and more sick time. After announcing the deal, the school committee warned that the increase in pay may lead to job and program cuts next fall. The Plymouth family that was trapped in Gaza for nearly a month is back in Massachusetts. The Shafi family arrived at Logan Airport from Paris yesterday afternoon. Hazem and Sanaa Shafi got stuck in Gaza with their three children when fighting broke out last month. Hazem's brother, Hani Shafi, says he's relieved. It's a happiness and sadness, that deal. You know, I'm happy that I got my brother and his family out, but I still got My dad and four other brothers and sisters and their families are still there. The Shafi family got out of Gaza by crossing into Egypt. 
Congressman Jim McGovern is leading a bipartisan group of lawmakers calling on the Biden administration to drop charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Assange is an Australian citizen charged with espionage for publishing classified military information. McGovern calls the charges against Assange an attack on freedom of the press. Today, the Boston City Council will consider a plan that would require police to compile annual data on gun trafficking. Supporters of the plan say trafficking is a major contributor to gun violence. Councilor Ricardo Arroyo sponsored the bill. He tells the Boston Herald the data will help councilors find a way to cut down on illegal guns in the city. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And the ICA, art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. The Bruins topped the Sabres 5-2 last night in Buffalo. The Bees' next game is Saturday. That's when they'll host the Montreal Canadiens. Tonight, the Celtics will try to extend their three-game winning streak as they visit the Philadelphia 76ers. Mostly sunny today with temperatures in the low 50s, cloudy overnight in the 30s, sunny tomorrow and in the low 60s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby. Dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years, the Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Israel-Hamas war has left many Americans questioning their country's role in the world and is testing longstanding diplomatic ties. Now, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows how Americans are divided along racial and generational lines on these issues. Joining us now to explain these findings is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. So, Domenico, this uh, poll shows that Americans uh, side with Israel in this conflict generally. Uh, how does that support breakdown by party? Yeah, I mean, overall, 61% say that their sympathies lie more with Israelis than Palestinians, but that's driven by Republicans and independents really here. You know, big majorities of both eight and 10 Republicans, two thirds of independents say that they side with Israel. Democrats, though, on the other hand, are split down the middle. There are big racial and generational divides here. Those 45 and younger were 25 points less likely to say that their sympathies are more with Israel. Roughly 50% of those under 45 said that they side mostly with Palestinians here. And non-whites were 16 points less likely to side with Israel compared to whites. All right. Now, we also asked people to weigh in specifically on Israel's response to Hamas's attack on October 7th, whether the response has been too much, about right, or too little. What'd you find there? Yeah, another big split. Uh, 38% say Israel's response has been too much. Another 38% say that it's been about right. As we've seen, Israel has responded to Hamas's attack with a massive show of force. There's been high civilian casualties in this densely populated area of the Gaza Strip. And as that's gotten more and more attention, more Americans are saying that Israel's response has been too much. That's up 12 points since last month when we first asked this question after Hamas's attack. 
That was driven by Democrats again, who jumped 21 points in the last month, and now a majority say Israel's gone too far. But it's not limited to Democrats, I have to say. You know, independents, whites, non-whites, old and young, all jumped double digits in saying the same thing. Those saying the response has been about right lines up more with pro-Trump and Republican groups. Okay, so hearing how you said that uh, Democrats' numbers have shifted, it sounds like it could be tricky for President Biden. Yeah, I mean, he's really, you know, been trying to walk a tightrope in supporting Israel, but also making warnings about upholding international law and advocating for humanitarian pauses to help Palestinians trapped in Gaza. Overall, 55% of people say that they disapprove of Biden's handling of the war. And that's in, that includes just 60% of Democrats. That's down 17 points from last month. He's got some real problems here with younger voters and non-whites, and they're both key to his re-election chances. You know, bigger picture here, eight in 10 in the survey said that they're concerned about the war leading to hate crimes in the United States, something we've already seen. You know, Biden and the White House have tried to head this off and speak to it, but it's a real potential tinderbox. And, and domestically, Americans seem to be indicating, according to the poll, that they want less to do with the rest of the world. So what did that survey say? Yeah, again, people really split here. Two-thirds of Democrats say that the United States should continue to play a leadership role, but 56% of independents and 51% of Republicans say it should focus on its own problems and play less of a leadership role. And that's a huge shift away from the hawkishness of really the not-so-distant Republican past. Again, here, huge racial and generational divides. Majorities of non-whites and those under 45 think the U.S. should turn inward compared to majorities of whites and those over 45 who think the opposite. Big divide here and really critical to what America will be in the future. All right, lots more in this survey. You can read it all on NPR.org. NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Louisiana's Mike Johnson made it through his first test as Speaker of the House. He worked with Democrats to approve a measure to keep the government open. Johnson has many tests ahead, so what does he stand for? He's still a relatively new and unfamiliar figure on the national stage, previously known for his efforts to keep Donald Trump in office after Trump lost the 2020 election. That effort is in line with a Christian conservative faction that supports Johnson. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis reports. Mike Johnson's ability to secure the speakership with unanimous support was cause for celebration for pastors like Dutch Sheets. God has given us a miracle in the election of Congressman Michael Johnson to this position. He's a godly man raised up for such a time as this. There is nothing unusual in American politics about religious leaders praying for politicians. But Sheets is not your traditional Christian pastor. Dutch Sheets did more, in my estimation, than any Christian leader to organize Christians for January 6th. Matthew Taylor is a senior scholar at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies. He has a forthcoming book on the role Christian extremism played in efforts to overturn the 2020 election, including the U.S. Capitol riot. January 6th has become part of the spirituality of many Christians in America. Sheets does not know Johnson personally, but the speaker has close relationships with Sheets' allies, who share a once-fringed theology known as the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, which ultimately seeks the end of the separation of church and state. It's existed for decades, but has risen in prominence and power since Donald Trump's 2016 victory. Its ascendancy is dividing the evangelical movement. On the other end are people like Marvin Olasky, who's been described as the godfather of compassionate conservatism. He says the rift is between evangelicals who want to bring the country under more strict biblical law 
and those like him who embrace pluralism and the democratic process. This is a, a civil war almost within Christianity who say, no, we want to achieve these ends and we'll do it by any means necessary. The any means necessary faction has a direct line to the likely Republican presidential nominee and now the Speaker of the House. If we're allowed to have favorites, okay, he just ranks up there in that top one percentile. That's Pastor Jim Garlow. He's been a faith advisor to Trump and hosts a weekly World Prayer Network live stream in which Johnson is a frequent guest, including this appearance back in August. I'm so grateful for the ministry and your faithfulness. It's a great encouragement to me and others who are serving in these sometimes rocky corners of the Lord's Vineyard. Garlow was instrumental in organizing religious leaders in prayer calls after the 2020 election that promoted false claims of election fraud. Johnson's role in efforts to overturn the election is well-documented. He authored a supporting brief on behalf of House Republicans asking the Supreme Court to block the Electoral College certification in key states Biden won. The court rejected the case, and Johnson was one of 147 House Republicans who voted against certifying the election. None of this was an issue for Republicans in the speaker's race. I think it's a mistake, but I think people make mistakes and still can be really good speakers. That's Ken Buck of Colorado speaking to CNN. Buck has generally condemned Republicans who undermine the 2020 election. For his part, Johnson speaks often and openly about his faith, as he did in his first interview as speaker with Fox News commentator Sean Hannity. I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. What Johnson is less willing to discuss is his role in challenging the 2020 election or clarifying that he views Joe Biden as the legitimately elected president. A reporter who tried to ask him a question about it the night he secured the speaker's nomination was booed down by Republican lawmakers. Should he make it that long as speaker, Johnson now has a powerful bully pulpit for the 2024 election, in which Donald Trump is likely to be the nominee. Trump still rejects the 2020 election and is under multiple criminal indictments for his efforts to overturn it. Taylor says Johnson's association with these religious leaders reflects the reality that Trump's Republican Party is giving once fringe evangelical leaders a seat at the table. I don't see Mike Johnson as some sort of like, oh man, he is really a crazy person from the margins and an outlier in this world. I think he's just a signal of what it looks like to be a right-wing Christian politician these days. Is These are the people that you hang out with. These are the people that support you. And Johnson sends signals that he supports them too. One of the symbols of this far-right Christian nationalist movement is what's known as an appeal to heaven flag, a white flag with a green pine tree in the center. The flag dates back to the Revolutionary War, but in the past decade, it's become a symbol for Christian nationalists like Sheets. Many of the flags were carried by protesters who stormed the Capitol. I don't know how, how much Mike Johnson buys into any of that, but he's definitely sending overt signals to these extremist networks of Christians that he is in solidarity with them. One of those Appeal to Heaven flags hangs outside of his congressional office. The Speaker's office did not respond to a request for comment on this story or his use of the flag. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Just a few weeks ago, a gunman took the lives of 18 people in Lewiston, Maine. Schools and businesses shut down temporarily as police search for the shooter. Now as the community looks to recover, they have much better news. The Lewiston High School boys soccer team are state champs. They won 3-2 to two over Deering. You just heard celebrations after a last-minute winning goal. 
which was recorded by Adam Robinson with Maine Sports Today. Dan Gish is the head coach. He says his players love soccer so much, they continue to train during last month's lockdown. You know, there's four National Guard helicopters on our grass field, and there's 30 different law enforcement agencies, and these guys still find a way to go kick on the pitch. Coach Dan Gish says the situation was stressful as they headed into the championship. It's a lot of pressure to win. They said they were going to do it for their city, and, you know, you worry about the pressure for them, and they handled it, and they got it done. It was really special. Ahmed Abdo is a defender on the team. He says winning the state championship is a dream come true. I feel happy for the boys and the city. After what has happened, just like a eye-opener, you know, like there's hope in the town, you know. It's a great way to bring the city together. You know, this is the school's fourth championship win. The first was back in 2015. The team's goalie, Payson Goyet, was a fan back then and remembers that moment. I went to that game. I've been wanting to win a championship ever since then, and it means a lot to bring it back home, especially with everything that's happened. The community will cheer the Lewiston Blue Devils, as they're known, at events in the coming weeks. And Coach Gish says they've got a lot more than soccer to celebrate. We've got guys from Angola, Somalia, Kenya, and French-Canadian kids are playing. And we show the world how you should get along. It doesn't matter where you're from on this team. As long as you do it for each other and you're a good person. A different sort of victory. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear about dissent among U.S. State Department employees. Dozens have signed on to internal memos expressing disagreement with the administration's approach to Israel's military campaign in Gaza. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. After decades of violence, peace-building efforts continue in Colombia, but some families there still worry about their safety. We have some illegal groups who are still fighting the government or they are kidnapping people. Colombians now living in the U.S. are advocating for protections next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Radio Lab comes to City Space on Friday, December 8th for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they change the world. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Mostly clear skies today. High temperatures will be in the low 50s. Tonight will dip into the 30s and clouds will move in. Then skies clear overnight and we'll have a sunny day tomorrow with highs in the low 60s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology, designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. 
and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Illegal gold mining is big business in Brazil, raking in more than $2 billion per year. It's also damaging the Amazon rainforest and poisoning indigenous communities. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. The heart of Brazil's tainted gold industry is here, deep in the Amazon, in the town of Itaituba, nicknamed Gold Nugget City. The city's official anthem praises its gold past. Its heroes are prospectors who work the land with just a pick and a promise of riches. A statue of a pioneer panning for gold graces the city's tiny plaza on the banks of the broad Tapajos River. Itaituba's 62-year-old mayor embodies its lore. There were only two streets in the city when I arrived, recalls Valmir Klimako sitting in his city hall office. That was during Itaituba's gold rush of the 1970s and 80s. It was a lot easier back then to make money, he says. Mining was so good, he sent for his 13 siblings, then for his mom and dad. But while legal areas for mining have dwindled over the years, the gold industry continues to grow. In fact, the last 10 years has brought another rush to Itaituba, although this one has been more criminal and cruel. Fueled by soaring global gold prices and lax environmental protection under Brazil's previous far-right president, the illegal trade has also been aided by a clever bill slipped through Congress 10 years ago. Dubbed the Good Faith Law, it gave gold buyers and sellers easy cover to trade in illegally mined gold. It also made Itaituba ground zero for gold sales. Junior Cesar Gomez watches as a blowtorch is ignited in the back of a small shop where he works. Freshly mined gold is heated, cleaned, and weighed here. Gomez says his dad was a prospector for 40 years, but he's never mined. Dozens of these gold shops line the streets of Itaituba. Prosecutors, lawmakers, and activists say they are the first and most critical stop in Brazil's gold trade and often the murkiest. Since passage of the Good Faith Law in 2013, gold buyers only need the seller's good word that everything is legit. No proof is necessary. Gomez insists he does more. Driving that point home, he even rejects two customers while I'm visiting. Their paperwork didn't check out, he says. Earlier this year, Brazil's Supreme Court suspended the good faith law and told the government to write new rules. They did, but the bill has stalled in Congress. And illegal gold operations continue, say activists, now outproducing Brazil's legal mining. It's huge. Larissa Rodriguez of the environmental think tank Instituto Escolas says as much as 54% of gold mined in Brazil, more than $2.5 billion in 2021, was tainted. She says the good faith bill helped profits boom and illegal operations proliferate, many now with ties to organized crime. Because everyone involved in illegal trade was protected, and with this protection, felt they could invest more. They could go forward with their illegal activities. 
They invested in expensive, heavy equipment, replacing men with picks. River dredging and clear-cutting that took wildcatters a month could now be done in a week. Deforestation exploded, leaving behind gouged-out slurry pools tainted with mercury, used heavily in the mining process, polluting many of the Amazon's rivers. Alessandra Corap knows this well. There are few fish she'll eat these days. She's cleaning a pile of the big-bellied fish in her small Mundukuru indigenous community outside Itatuba. This species only eats berries, not other fish, so it has the least amount of mercury. She says while washing the smell off her hands. Corap walks to the banks of the Tapajos River and looks out. She says her community is under siege. Tanto que sai avião, caminhonete dentro das terras indígenas. We see so many planes and trucks going in and out of indigenous lands and through our rivers. It's so easy for them, she says. She applauds the stepped-up enforcement by leftist president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. He's vowed to end Amazon deforestation by 2030. At City Hall, Itaituba's mayor, Valmir Climaco, says he's worried the crackdown is hurting his town's livelihood. Look, he says, if the prospector follows the law, I don't see anything bad. And like many in Itaituba, he wants to make sure the 20 million people who work throughout the Amazon can earn a living. But activists and authorities say many officials in the rainforest encourage illegal deforestation and mining. Several of the mayor's operations have been investigated. He was convicted of illegal clear-cutting in 2019. On a recent night, the Gold Nugget City's riverfront is bustling with carnival rides, games, and food stalls. Daniel Moreira Araujo is on a break from the gold mine he works which he says is legally permitted. Agents are out all around us burning equipment, he says. Given the rainforest's thick terrain, it's easier for officials to ignite the huge dredgers and backhoes instead of removing them. More than 2,000 have been burned so far this year. The 22-year-old says the enforcement is intimidating. Salomal Silva, with his wife and children, says the crackdown has hit Itaituba hard. We are living in a new era, and we get that laws have to be followed now, he says, especially as Brazil is facing intense international pressure to save the Amazon. But he adds he's worried about what that new economy is going to look like. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Itaituba, Brazil. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. Brookline Town Meeting members passed a historic plan last night to build significantly more apartments and condos along streets near public transit. It's 829. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. 
WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com. And German International School of Boston. Sign up for preschool and kindergarten open house on November 18th at gisbos.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military says its forces are targeting Hamas fighters inside the largest hospital in Gaza. Israel says it's carrying out a precise military operation in a section of the Al-Shifa hospital complex. Doctors, patients, evacuees and others remain trapped there. Hazem Shafi is a Palestinian-American who was able to leave Gaza with his wife and three children through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. He spoke to reporters at Logan International Airport in Massachusetts. We're here. That's all that matters. And I want to thank everyone who actually participated on getting us out. The Senate is expected to vote on a resolution that would allow hundreds of U.S. military nominees to be confirmed. Their nominations have been held up for months in an ongoing protest by Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama over a Pentagon abortion policy. The Senate Rules Committee approved the change in a vote of 9 to 7. Senate Democrats will need at least nine GOP senators to support the resolution for passage. Republican Mitt Romney of Utah plans to vote in favor of the change. We have to make sure that we do not continue to hold up 350-plus people from being able to get promoted. The protest has held up promotions and confirmations for senior officers. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill have until the end of today to approve a compromise supplemental budget, or it may have to wait until the new year. The Senate approved its version of the budget yesterday. It includes more than $250 million in funding for the state's emergency shelter system. That system hit a self-imposed cap last week and is now putting families who need housing on a wait list. A new pilot program will give 2,000 low- and moderate-income households in the state electric heat pumps and in-home batteries. The project will test whether the batteries can power homes during times of high electricity demand. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports that would reduce stress on the power grid. In the future, as more people install electric heat pumps, peak energy demand in New England could be double what it is today. Meeting it will require building out a lot of expensive infrastructure. But if we can shift when some appliances draw power from the grid, we may be able to build less. By installing batteries that dispatch when energy demand is high and recharge when demand is low, the pilot aims to test whether this is possible at scale. Talak Subramanian is with Eversource, which is helping with the pilot. And what we would do is really look to dispatch those batteries to mitigate the draw on the grid. The $50 million pilot is funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. It's not quite snakes on a plane, but instead a horse on a plane. A cargo airline says a horse on board a cargo flight from New York last week got loose in the skies over the Cape and Islands. Before turning around, the pilot had to dump thousands of gallons of fuel between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. David Fisichella is president of the nonprofit Cape Cod Aero Club in Falmouth. He says fuel dumps are not a hazard when they happen at a high altitude. 
they'll typically either evaporate or they'll be extremely dispersed. It's not like it's falling to the ground as a as rain droplets. If the horse can move around, it can change the weight and balance of the aircraft. The center of gravity of the plane could change so significantly that the plane could become uncontrollable. The plane was able to get back to New York safely. There's been no update on the horse that got loose. It's 8.33. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. The Bruins beat the Sabres last night in Buffalo. The final was 5-2. Five different Boston players scored in the win. The Bees are now off until Saturday. The Celtics will be in Philadelphia tonight to play the 76ers. Highs in the low 50s today under mostly sunny skies. It grows cloudy tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Skies clear overnight and Thursday will be sunny with highs in the low 60s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. President Biden laid out a modest goal for a meeting with China's leader. Xi Jinping is in the San Francisco Bay Area for a meeting of the leaders of many Pacific nations, and he plans a one-on-one with Biden. Relations between the world's two largest economies are now bad enough that Biden just wants to talk more. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith is going to have a front row seat for the first part of that meeting today. She joins us now from San Francisco. Uh, Tam, it just seems like the goals bar for this meeting is low, just being able to talk on the phone. So what makes this uh, meeting consequential? Well, relations with China have been chilly. Biden and she haven't even spoken since last November. And it's been more than a year since China broke off military to military communications channels with U.S. officials. And uh, American leaders are, are not making a secret of the fact that they really want to see those communications restored. That's one of the goals of this meeting. And it's important because the best way to prevent conflict is to talk. If there's understanding of, of what the other guys are doing. Um, Conflict is less likely. For Biden, this is also an important meeting because it's a chance to demonstrate what his priorities are. Countering China has been at the top of his foreign policy agenda, but you wouldn't really know it because he's had to deal with all of these other issues, a land war in Europe, now the crisis in the Middle East. Um, And he, he plans to talk to Xi about both of those global issues as well. All right. So what else could actually come out of this meeting? We're expecting President Biden to hold a press conference later today where he will announce what the two nations have agreed to. There have been a lot of conversations leading up to this, and there are signs that there could be some sort of agreement aimed at reducing the flow of the ingredients used to make the deadly synthetic opioid fentanyl. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters yesterday that he's optimistic that could happen. It's something that he raised with Xi last month during a visit to China. I can't think of anything 
that would do more to stop fentanyl from coming into the United States than China stopping the flow of these precursor drugs, which incidentally are illegal in China, but they don't do anything to stop them. But a word of caution here, back in 2018, I covered a meeting between Xi and then President Donald Trump. And the big outcome then was a commitment to reduce the flow of fentanyl. And yet it is still a major problem killing tens of thousands of Americans every year. So it's the sort of commitment from China where actions may be a lot louder than words. Now, getting this meeting on the calendar just seemed like it was arduous. The process just took a while and very secretive. So, I mean, why was there so much suspense about this? Yeah, the details have been kept under very tight wraps. The White House has been unwilling to even say where the meeting is happening due to security concerns. But a source familiar uh, told me that um, it will happen at a historic venue south of San Francisco. That's as far as they would go. Every detail has been carefully curated. This source tells me that all the logistics were choreographed right down to what President Xi will see out of windows. Um, And let's just say that the protest culture here in the Bay Area is alive and well, something that doesn't really exist in China. Um, So uh, it's not something that the Chinese president would be accustomed to seeing. He's also not used to reporters shouting questions, but we're going to do it anyway. Absolutely. NPR's Tamara Keith, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Israel says its troops have entered Gaza's biggest hospital complex. Israeli forces say they're looking for Hamas fighters in a complex where thousands of patients, doctors, and civilians are trapped. Israel today also says it's allowing fuel into Gaza, now that the United Nations says its fuel stocks there have run out. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza has prompted widespread protest around the world, and that includes some objections within the U.S. State Department. Diplomats have what is called a dissent channel, allowing them to privately raise concerns about U.S. policy. And lately that's been leaking out into the open, now with some objections about the U.S. support for Israel. And it's not clear how many have spoken up, but it's gotten the attention of the Secretary of State. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman joins us now to discuss it. So, Michelle, what do we know about what kinds of objections have been raised? Well, we don't know much about the actual dissent cables or a letter um, at the U.S. Agency for International Development that has its own system for employees to register opposition to policies. Officials at both of those agencies like to keep these channels private to allow employees to come forward without the fear of retribution. We also don't really know the numbers of people who have signed on, but even if a couple of hundred, as has been reported, that's still a small percentage of those agencies. And there's been only one resignation that we know of so far at the State Department. But the general thrust I'm hearing is that the dissenters want the U.S. to press Israel to agree to a ceasefire. The Biden administration argues that a ceasefire would allow Hamas to regroup and instead has been encouraging temporary humanitarian pauses. All right. So we don't know a lot about what or who is in these dissents. So what have U.S. officials been saying about them? Well, they say they're listening, meeting with staff, both at headquarters and in the region. Um, That's true at the U.S. Agency for International Development, and that's true for Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Here's what his spokesman, Matthew Miller, had to say. He encourages people to provide feedback. He encourages people to speak up if they disagree. It doesn't mean that we're going to change our policy based on their disagreements. He is going to take their recommendations and make ultimately what he thinks is the best judgment and make his recommendations to the president about what we ought to do. 
And President Biden, as we know, um, says that Israel has the right to defend itself after the October 7th attack. He has been encouraging Israel to do more to protect civilians, especially around those hospitals. So his policy and his rhetoric have evolved over the course of the conflict, but not as much as some diplomats and aid staff would like. Is this internal dissent channel a new thing? No, the channel isn't new. It dates back to the Vietnam War, oh, okay. and diplomats oh. have used it for, among other things, to call for changes in policy in Iraq, Afghanistan, and to raise objections to the Trump Muslim ban. But retired diplomat Pete Romero says there have been more leaks recently, and that's tough in what he calls a really toxic political environment. I don't know whether it's different or whether it might be the new normal, where people are expressing their dissent and it becomes public and it becomes part of the public debate. He has a podcast called The American Diplomat and the episodes coming out this week is on dissent. And he says young diplomats in particular are really trying to figure out how to express dissent while still being a team player. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, big public transit systems are warning of deep service cuts as they struggle to make up lost revenue from fewer riders. But in some places, ridership is growing as systems adapt to the new normal. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report puts a focus on the future of water and what may happen when supplies run low and prices rise. Mostly sunny and low 50s today, mostly cloudy and upper 30s tonight, sunny tomorrow and will warm up to the low 60s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Boston-based General Electric has named its inaugural board of directors for its coming renewable energy spinoff. The board for GE Verona includes executives from Shell and Lockheed Martin. The board is expected to be put in place sometime in the middle of next year. Cambridge-based Theseus Pharmaceuticals is laying off 26 employees, or more than 70 percent of its workforce. The cuts follow safety concerns over the biotech's experimental drug to treat gastrointestinal cancer. Company officials say they're now considering options, including a possible sale or merger. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act, so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Communities along MBTA transit corridors are on a state deadline to submit rezoning plans to allow for multifamily housing. 
The hope is that more units would mean lower housing prices. It's been a controversial push in some communities. That includes Brookline, which approved a proposal last night at a town meeting. Sam Mintz was there. He's the editor of Brookline News, and he joins us now. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What's in this plan that was passed last night, and why was it so controversial? So the heart of this plan, which passed, is uh, changing the zoning along most of Harvard Street, which is a central corridor in Brookline, to make it easier for housing developers to build multifamily housing, which you know we would call apartments and condos. Um, the new zoning would allow building up to four stories, uh, which is high for parts of the corridor. Um, and the town's planning department says that it could lead to as many as 800 new condos and apartments being built along that Harvard Street stretch, which is you know, almost 3% of the total amount of housing in Brookline right now. So really potentially a significant change in the town's housing landscape and what that, you know, main strip looks like. And why was there some pushback to that at one point? So for all sorts of reasons, I mean, there's, you know, in Brookline, I think there there have always been debates and arguments about development. And, and Harvard Street is sort of an iconic, visually and architecturally an iconic stretch of the town. It's sort of what people think of uh, when they think about Brookline. So I think a lot of the concern was about that, was about what would happen to historic buildings and to small businesses, which people worry uh, you know, might be pushed out by this plan somehow if the, the area is redeveloped and you know, these businesses that have been in the area for, for decades. Um, and there's this, this really interesting process uh, that, that developed to, to build consensus around a plan that sort of met everyone's needs uh, in the moment. So how did it play out last night? What was the mood like? It was... Uh, it was a, a real success, I think, for for many people in Brookline, it was sort of a, a jubilant uh, moment. There were people standing up and clapping after the the vote happened. Um, you know, I I talked to several town leaders who described it as really historic, um, as being a moment that they said people are going to look back on, um, as you know, Brookline sort of deciding about what it wants its future to be, deciding that it wants to be part of the solution in the Boston area when it comes to the housing crisis and and building housing supply. Can you put this in a little bit of a larger context for us? What do you think this decision says about how Brookline is changing and growing? Yeah, I mean, I think to people watching from outside of Brookline and maybe even some people inside Brookline, you know, it might come as sort of a surprise. I think it's fair to say that it's a town with a reputation of being opposed to development of, you know, wanting to sometimes keep out outsiders and, you know, whether that's, uh, Fair, accurate. I think that that is certainly the perception. Um, but I think the response by the town here last night really kind of changes that narrative because it, it goes above and beyond the requirements of the the law, which actually just just requires zoning. And so there's there was a way that Brookline could have responded that was under consideration that would have changed the zoning, but not actually really allowed for or led to any new housing. So I think, you know, again, the message that town leaders want to send is that they recognize that there's a, a housing crisis in the Boston area and the town wants to be part of the solution. And I think, you know, the the proposal that passed last night was really a resounding victory for that view of the world and for the view of how Brookline should be addressing the problem. And how does what Brookline did last night compare to what other cities and towns that have had to submit these rezoning plans, how does it compare to what they've done? Well, every town's a little different, uh, so I don't want to draw too many direct comparisons, but there, there are definitely a few things that stand out. You know, in, in Arlington, for example, they recently voted on a fairly similar rezoning, but the process was so heated uh, that at one meeting, police had to be called in to break the tension. Uh, so we've seen disagreement in Brookline, but uh, certainly nothing like that. Um, you know, in Milton, which uh, has a town meeting, is in a similar position to Brookline in terms of its requirements and and its deadline. The town has really 
push back on the state and challenge whether it's being categorized right. And I think there's sort of still some uncertainty about how that vote will go. And then the one last example is Newton right next door to Brookline, where there was just a municipal election in which, um, you know, several supporters of uh, what I would call a more robust response to the MBTA zoning requirements got voted out of the city council. Um, and I think, you know, from the reporting I read there, that's really being read as a referendum on how the town ultimately responds. And I think they'll be voting soon as well. You know, they have also this December 31st deadline. Sam Mintz is a reporter and editor for Brookline News. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll talk about the black market for diet drugs in the UK. Plus, a look at the bird of the century. It's from New England and called the Puteki Teki. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. Closing soon. Learn more at PEM.org. Los Angeles has the biggest population of homeless veterans in the country and a sprawling campus that's long been promised to house them. After years of veteran activism and lawsuits, the VA may finally be on track to fulfill its promise. We have the resources, we have the team. There's no reason for any of our veterans in LA to be homeless. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Israeli forces have raided the largest hospital in Gaza, which Israel says is harboring Hamas fighters. President Biden will meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in California today for their first face-to-face meeting in a year. And the U.S. House voted yesterday to fund the government into the new year, avoiding a possible shutdown. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo and Natick, with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Low 50s and mostly sunny today. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Retail sales are limping their way into the holidays. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Retail sales in October fell a tenth of a percent. That is a turnaround from September when they had increased nine-tenths of a percent. Prices at the wholesale level just in fell half a percent in October. All of this supports a muted outlook for the holiday shopping season. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Retail sales are expected to increase during this holiday shopping period, but likely at the slowest pace in several years, and just about enough only to keep up with inflation. So many retailers are being cautious heading into the final months of the year. Take forecasts yesterday from Home Depot. In a call with analysts, merchandising chief Billy Bastek said they're already seeing shoppers pulling back a bit. 
we saw the continuation of a trend that we have been observing throughout the year with softness in certain big tickets, discretionary type purchases. Instead of engaging in larger projects, customers continue to take on smaller projects. That kind of lackluster spending is unlikely to power Home Depot to a strong year-end finish. For the first time since the Great Recession, the company predicted that its sales will decline this year. The nation's biggest retailer, Walmart, skipped the usual seasonal worker hiring binge heading into the holidays, saying it had enough people on staff already. Meanwhile, Macy's, which has also signaled the likelihood of slowing sales, opened up fewer seasonal positions. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. The House of Representatives has passed a stopgap funding measure to avoid a government shutdown Friday. The bill does not include funding for Ukraine or Israel, border security measures, or additional funding for a federal nutrition program for women <clears throat> and children. Decisions on those get delayed. It is now up to the Senate, which has till Friday to pass the bill. Let's do the numbers. Dow Jones, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 3 to 6 tenths percent range. The Dow futures up 120 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.494%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at Schwab.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Water is both cheap and precious, something we literally cannot live without yet often take for granted. But what happens when it runs dry or when water becomes unaffordable? That's what our Climate Solutions podcast, How We Survive, is digging into this season. Host and senior correspondent Amy Scott has an episode out today about a community near Scottsdale, Arizona, that found its water supply cut off. She recently spoke with Marketplace Morning Report host David Brancaccio. All right. So this community, Rio Verde Foothills, what happened to its water supply? Yeah. So this is a community of about 2,000 homes scattered through the foothills outside of Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a really pretty place, but it's in an unincorporated part of Maricopa County. Most residents have wells, but about 500 households rely entirely on hauled water. As you said, water purchased from the city of Scottsdale and delivered in big trucks. Uh, but in January of this year, Scottsdale cut them off as part of a plan to address the ongoing drought. We've been following one couple, Lee Harris and her husband, Frank Avril. They went from spending about $130 to fill up their big underground tank, which lasts about five to six weeks, to more than $500 a delivery, mostly because of the extra diesel costs, and they're on a limited income and just couldn't afford it. That's wild. How have they been managing? Well, I want to play you some uh, sound of when I first met Lee back in June. I was walking up to her front door and noticed all these plastic bottles lined up outside. Turns out they were filled with rainwater that they had been collecting to flush their toilets. They have to promise me to not think untoward of us because we've been literally camping in this house uh, for six months now with no real running water. 
they ended up going almost 10 months borrowing tap water from work and from friends, eating a lot of microwavable meals, collecting rainwater to flush the toilets. But, you know, there wasn't much rain at all in Arizona this summer, and they were getting pretty worried. You are dangling a solution ahead. But before <laughs> we get that, how common is this phenomenon of hauling water in America because the pipes have run dry? Well, one of the problems is that no one is really tracking this. A lot of rural homes in Arizona that don't have wells or where the water quality isn't very good pay to haul potable water. A loophole in Arizona groundwater law allows home builders to sell homes without a guaranteed water supply on land that's split into five or fewer lots. These are known as wildcat developments. We also spoke to a resident, Christy Jackman, who runs a horse and donkey boarding business in Rio Verde Hills. She has well water uh, and she blames the home builders for this crisis. Problem is you don't put houses for sale when there's no water underneath you in a place like this. You just got to build smart. So there's a movement in the state to close the wildcat loophole, but so far it hasn't gone anywhere. All right. So you host the Climate Solutions podcast, How We Survive. What are some of the medium term solutions here? Well, for Rio Verde foothills, in the end, the Arizona legislature stepped in. They allowed the community to create a sort of quasi-government agency to buy water from a private company, deliver it through Scottsdale's infrastructure. Lee and Frank got their first delivery just a few weeks ago. Um, but that's what this season is about. It's really looking into how we're going to adapt and find other sources of water if we want to keep living in increasingly arid places. Marketplace's Amy Scott is host of How We Survive. The podcast is out now wherever you sign up for podcasts. Amy, thank you. Thanks so much, David. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio there. You can learn more about How We Survive at Marketplace.org. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Lots of sun today with just a few clouds. Temperatures will rise to the low 50s. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the upper 30s. Clouds move out overnight and will have clear skies tomorrow, along with a warm-up to the low 60s. It's 40 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.